Welcome to the Nourish, Eat, Repeat podcast, helping people who want to improve their health and change their mindset around food so they can live the life they were designed and called for. I am your host, Adrian Delgado, and in this podcast, I'll give you step-by-step action plans to reach your health goals, as well as my favorite recipes I know you and your family will enjoy. Let's get started. to another episode of Nourish, Eat, Repeat. Uh, We have a very special guest today that I am so excited for you to meet and to learn from and to listen to because you are just going to love this conversation. Dr. Kara Wada is a board-certified academic adult and pediatric allergy, immunology, and lifestyle medicine physician, Sjogren's patient, certified life coach, TEDx speaker, and Dr. Midwest 2023. She is a certified life coach and currently serves as assistant fellowship director and assistant clinical professor at The Ohio State University. It's because of everything she learned and went through as a patient that she has made it her mission to use the privilege she has as a physician to help us all navigate our health and wellness more effectively and efficiently. Most importantly, to find ways to ensure that we are fully seen and cared for as patients and as people. She helps those struggling with misbehaving immune systems and become immune confident through her podcast by the same name. Kara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me this morning. I'm so excited to to chat again. Um, We had so much fun connecting a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited for this episode. I actually put out some questions to some of our community at um, my practice, and they are excited for you to be here. They have some questions. So I think this is going to just be a really fun conversation. Yeah, I'm excited to um, to hear what they are and to do my best to answer and also let you know if it's something that you know I need to, to report back on. Yes. Well, if that's the case, we will have you back gladly because, <laughs> like I said, this is going to be fun. We did have a lot of fun when we met. So, um, so Kara, I'm going to have you just tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you said in um, just even in your introduction that yeah. you, through your own experience, have come to this place. So we'd love to learn more yeah. about that. Yeah. So um, I'll take you back about four and a half years ago. I was in my second year in my first real big girl job um, and had just come back from maternity leave after having my second child, second of three. And I was completely and totally exhausted. Not super surprising as a mom of two little kiddos and, you know, working full time um, as, um, as a physician. Although that being said, like allergy immunology is not the most the most strenuous of specialties. It's, you know, it's, it's known um, for kind of being a little bit more of like an eight to five type job. And I went for my dental checkup and my hygienist said, goodness, Kara, your mouth looks really dry. Is everything okay? And it really was that, that simple comment that put, you know, kind of the light bulb turned on and really had this, you know, this flash of these different symptoms I had been experiencing really for 10 plus years kind of coming together. And it was at that moment that I was like, oh, shoot, I need, I really do need to get that checked out. And I kind of jokingly said, oh, I probably should get that checked out. 
what came to mind at that point was I had not been able to wear mascara for um, several years, was unable to tolerate wearing contacts, um, which I attributed to, to dry eyes. I also recalled a conversation I had with my OB um, years ago as a newlywed, you know, having um, having pain with, with sex because, you know, it was um, uncomfortable. And a conversation I had with uh, with my primary care doctor, even as an intern, you know, many years before about this back pain and thinking, goodness, this back pain was more stiffness. And it always got better when I was pregnant. And that seemed odd because most people have more back pain when they're pregnant, not less. Um, and then last but not least, I had had an episode after having my first baby of um, essentially an anaphylactic reaction that was idiopathic, or we didn't have an exact cause for it. And with my training, I knew that these things were, were not normal, but I also was grappling with, you know, like just keep swimming, you know, aspect of being a mom and not making time to really even think about what was going on with my own health. But it was that at that moment that I was like, oh gosh, I think I have an autoimmune condition. I'm worried about something called Sjogren's, which I had learned about in training. I got asked questions about it on my board examinations. Um, And really one of the hallmarks of that condition is tissue dryness. It's not all tissue dryness as some of our teaching as as medical professionals would, um, would understand. And as I would come to understand from learning from the patient community, um, what, you know, over the last four years I've realized is that what I learned about my particular condition through my training, even as a board certified immune system doctor, was just the tiniest little bit of the actual lived experience of this condition. And now, you know, as I as I continue to learn both the evolving science, but also from the patient community, it's like the layers of an onion peeling back um, in, in realizing um, what's going on. That also was a big turning point in exploring more so I've always had an interest in kind of the more natural or like lifestyle aspects to care, but really digging into that both professionally and personally. Um, how can food help us rather than potentially harm us, movement, sleep, all of those sorts of things, um, using lifestyle essentially as medicine. And that's um, how and why I ended up pursuing that um, that program as well. So that's, yeah. That's, that's my story. That's the, the long and the short of it. Have you heard the news? We started a brand new membership program called My Nutrition Coach, and you're invited to join. At Bodymetrics, most of our clients come to us through their medical health insurance plan. Unfortunately, most insurances don't offer enough sessions to see big results. And some plans, they don't cover nutrition services at all. At Bodymetrics, we are passionate about helping our clients see results and making nutrition accessible to everyone. That's why we created My Nutrition Coach, a program that offers education and accountability between one-on-one sessions and an affordable option for those without coverage. Inside the membership, you'll get access to weekly teachings, nutrition-focused goals to work on, recipes, a private community page for support, a video resource library, and an opportunity to ask questions to a real dietitian. This helpful program is available right now for only $9.99 a month. 
or $99 if you sign up annually. But it's important to us to make sure we're a good fit for you. So we're offering a special 30-day free trial if you sign up now. To start your free 30-day trial, simply go to bodymetricshealth.com and click on the Programs tab. There, you will see my nutrition coach. Simply click for more information and to join. We can't wait to see you inside the membership. Well, what I think is what so, I don't want to say fascinating, that might not be the right word, but you have training, yeah. you know, professionally and from the medical field. And so you can come at this from a unique perspective because you have the education behind you to think critically and scientifically, but yet you're also looking at, hey, there might be more to this um, than just specifically going the medical route and, you know, what else can I be doing to make sure I'm I'm there for my family, I'm there for my patients, um, and I can give the best care possible to myself too. Yeah, and I think, you know, Sjogren's specifically as a condition, I I maybe wouldn't have been, I feel like, pushed to that um, as much if it weren't for the state of this particular autoimmune condition. So conditions like rheumatoid arthritis um, in particular have had a real wonderful um, surge of pharmaceuticals that are extraordinarily helpful. Um, It slowing progression, putting people into remission. They're generally relatively, you know, pretty safe and tolerated and they work really well. Sjogren's is in this big gap. So we have kind of one particular medication called hydroxychloroquine that works pretty well. Um, But if we fail that medication, there's a huge gap. And then you end up essentially with some of the the medications that are much more immune suppressive. So essentially kind of wipe out a a pretty significant component of your immune system. Ironically, I take care of patients who have used this particular medicine. Um, They're essentially medicines that wipe out white blood cells called B cells. They produce your antibodies. I, the, those medicines are used for certain cancers. They're used for other autoimmune conditions, um, some neurologic conditions as well. I end up seeing those folks afterwards if their B cells don't come back or if their antibodies don't come back. That's part of my role is helping treat them. And so I kind of have like a little bit of an extra fear of those medications because of that. Um, I only see folks when they have bad problems happen with it. And so it was this huge gap in the treatments that I was like, oh, shoot, like I got to do something (laughs) in that type A personality that I was like, oh, okay, gotta feel empowered in some way. So can you speak to the connection between the body's inflammatory response versus allergy? And like, what is the difference? Is it the same? What is, what's actually going on in the body? Yeah, I, so I term all of these situations, including like cancer too, as misbehaving immune system. The immune system isn't functioning as it ideally should in a perfect world. In allergy, what happens is our body is seeing bits and pieces of the outside world, whether it be pollen or pet dander, dust mites, or even in some cases food, as a danger signal. And in that particular instance, it is mounting a specific flavor of inflammation particular types of cells and, and, and substances that they use to communicate called cytokines, 
they're they're kind of all working in a particular flavor. So that's why we see itching, sneezing, hives, um, throwing up. Those are all stemming from particular cells being triggered. Interestingly, you know, if we think back to when we, when our ancestors were sitting around the campfire, you know, living in cave, cave people times, paleolithic times, we didn't really have allergies. Those immune system cells that we now associate with allergy were specifically honed to help us survive parasite infections. If you think about this tiny little white blood cell, it can't do the Pac-Man maneuver on a worm, right? So it releases these toxic substances that then would hopefully help us as humans expel them in various ways. So that's kind of how I explain allergy to, to my patients and to others as well. Other in flavors of inflammation that we have, so autoimmunity is kind of this, you know, this bigger entity that we think about. It's when the body has lost its ability to realize that we should tolerate our own, our own self. So we've made essentially a response or an immune response to our, our own self. It's also closely related to auto-inflammatory. So there's kind of a distinction, but this is when parts of our immune system that are don't have the ability to make memory, but are essentially the dials turned up. So you're seeing a lot more um, symptoms of inflammation. So inflammation itself, it's hot, it's red, it's painful, um, it's swollen. Those are kind of the things that we think about with inflammation. And in its core, inflammation in when it's harnessed appropriately helps us heal if you have a cut or if you have an infection. But when it sticks around for too long, like in a house guest that's upstate, it's welcome, becomes chronic, that's when it becomes an issue. And that's when we see it related to things like autoimmune disease, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, um, you know, some of these other conditions that we consider, you know, modern diseases. They're all characterized by too much of this inflammation. Okay. So then I know you said allergy kind of has its its own flavor, right? Yeah. So yeah. where does that put things like intolerances or sensitivities? Where yeah. does that fall on the spectrum? Great, great, um, great question. And I think, you know, how I talk about that is, you know, digging into what we're realizing are, you know, some of the underlying reasons why we're seeing more of these issues. So you probably, and maybe many of your listeners learned about the hygiene hypothesis, this idea that the reason we're seeing more allergies and autoimmune conditions is because we're all cleaner. We're using hand sanitizer, we're taking antibiotics, like we're, we have clean water. Um, and that explains it to a little degree, but really we've kind of taken this step back and looked at this bigger concept called the epithelial barrier hypothesis. It's a long set of words, but essentially it's this idea, our body interfaces with the outside world in a few different ways, through our skin, through our gut, and through our respiratory tract, like our sinuses and our lungs. And those barriers don't, we don't want them to be a strict fortress because we need to communicate with our outside world. We want to be able to absorb nutrients through our gut. Um, but we also are exposed to a lot of things within our environment that put chinks in this armor, 
So make these um, these barriers more leaky or have more communication between the outside world and the inside world. When we talk about, for instance, intolerances and sensitivities, we're talking about different types of um, reactions or symptoms we can have in part due to this barrier being not as strong as it used to be. So food allergy is going to have that particular flavor where we have um, white blood cells called mast cells that are being triggered. They're causing us to have pretty immediate symptoms of throwing up, hives, up to like a life-threatening potential reaction. Those need strict avoidance, an EpiPen, right, to treat them. But if you have particular foods that maybe are um, not able to be digested well because our microbiome or the, the bacteria, viruses, and fungi that help us digest are not, you know, not fully up to their, you know, their ideal strength, um, you may not be able to break down certain um, sugars like lactose, for instance. So lactose intolerance, if you don't have the bacteria and the enzymes that are able to break down that sugar, you end up with significant bloating and diarrhea. And some of that may be related to changes that occur when the gut is not in, you know, that, that great healthy state. That kind of makes sense. It does, but it just leads me to a whole bunch of questions. Yeah. (laughs) So like, so my questions are, I feel like I got to say them all or I'll forget them, but it'll confuse you. So I'll try to do them one at a time. So are there certain things that, um, we can do to prevent that process so we can keep our system strong and, uh, and, and appropriately, um, well, I'll just say appropriately strong strong enough to yeah. be able to still communicate yeah. with our How do we outside, minimize the chinks in the armor. Yeah. Correct. You know, we're still learning all of the different factors that may play in, but some things that we do know can help, you know, that may be helpful to minimize our exposure to, or, you know, things that may, there are some things we can add to help too. So one of the things that um, was talked about significantly at our recent allergy, national allergy and immunology meeting was there's big implications in some of the rinse aids that are used in especially commercial dishwashers. So like at restaurants, hospitals, things along those lines. So there are, you know, there's a lot of work going into some of the, the chemicals, the soaps that we are you know, we're exposed to, there's residue on glasses. Um, and so, you know, there's more, there will, there will be more to come on, on, you know, some of these, um, these different things. One thing we've done at home is I've switched to a more eco-friendly product. Um, generally, you know, one of the, these are broad brush strokes, but a lot of times if we, um, look at, you know, things that are a little more eco-friendly, many times those may be, a little less um, problematic um, for our health too. It's not 100%, but kind of broad brushstrokes. The other um, aspects that we have learned, um, emulsifiers and other additives in especially ultra-processed foods are detrimental to our gut health. They essentially break down some of the mucus layer that lines our gut and provides like a nice cushion between the food and the gut lining, the microbiome, kind of all of that interface. 
So can you give us examples of like what an emulsifier would be like on a food label? Yeah. So um, things like polysorbate, um, polyethylene glycol, um, those are some of the big ones that will come up. Um, I'm trying to think of a few others. Um, I'm wondering if you, pro you probably with your work have some in mind too. No, you're doing great. Um, well, it, because it's it's tricky, right? You're reading the yeah. label. You're like, I don't know what that is, but I guess it's okay because it's on the label and, you know, yeah. somebody approved it along the way. But yeah, you know. xanthan gum is another one. Gums mm -hmm. is another key word to kind of look for. And, you know, some of these in, you know, small, um, small amounts, probably fine. But if a big portion of our diet has these added in, those all, you know, those all add up. The other things that we know um, can cause um, more leakiness in the gut. So um, alcohol, so drinking um, alcohol in particular, and then um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Certainly sometimes these are necessary if, you know, you have a fever or pain, you know, but work with your healthcare team and professionals and if you are concerned about that, let them know, you know, see if there maybe are some other alternatives that might be, you know, better tolerated or less problematic. We also know that there are certain things that we can add to our diet that can be helpful. So a diet rich in different types of fiber. So those are considered prebiotics. That's what those bacteria, the good bacteria feast off of. So getting a good variety of those is really important. Um, more important probably than the overall, you know, if you're getting a variety, you're probably going to get a good amount too, quantity and quality. Um, but um, the variety really makes the difference. And so there's some, you know, some big studies that would say ideally aiming for, if you can, 30 different types of plants in a week, it sounds insane. Um, but when you think, when you like get over the initial shock factor, it includes fruits, vegetables, seeds, nuts, whole grains, um, spices and herbs. Um, so, and legumes, forgot beans and legumes, lentils. So, you know, one thing we'll do occasionally, especially if we're in a time crunch um, in a particular week, we have a local kind of fast food type restaurant that is Mediterranean based. And you can get this bowl that has like some lentils and some rice. It has some greens, like mixed greens. It has um, some um, various veggies you can choose from, eggplant, uh, peppers. Um, there's hummus and baba ganoush. You know, like you make this bowl with all the spices and flavors, and you're probably getting two-thirds of what you need in that one meal for the whole week. We actually did a um, a thirty plant challenge at work oh, um, a couple. I guess it was a couple months ago, and we kind of we tried to ramp it up. So, like the first week, your goal was to get twenty plants, but by the end of the challenge, you were up to thirty. And um, I think I think it's fantastic. And my favorite topic of all time is poop. My listeners know that. My patients know that I love talking about poop yeah. and fiber. And so, you are making my day right now talking about having a diversified diet, making sure that you're not just eating the same fruits and vegetables all the time, but 
getting a variety of, of, of produce, of grains even. Sometimes we like just default to potatoes, rice, or pasta, but there are things like farro and bulgur and barley wow. and all these really great options out there that you might just not be as familiar with because you haven't been exposed to it. And this is where I think it's so fun to just try to put yourself into like little kid mode to tap into that curiosity and that excitement about like trying something new. Sometimes trying something new can be really daunting and scary, especially if, you know, we're not super adventurous with eating. But if you can try your best to be like, oh, this is a fun adventure. We're just going to try it. We're going to see if this is something I like. And I'm going to give myself a couple tries knowing that my brain may learn to like something with some time too. Um, and even just aiming for maybe trying one one new thing a week. Like when you go to the store, let's let's get your kids involved. Like let's pick out one new fruit or vegetable that we haven't tried. Uh, like uh, my kids were obsessed with the idea of trying dragon fruit, mm-hmm. um, which in the Midwest, maybe not the best representation of dragon fruit. It was very pretty, probably not going to be a lasting spot on our grocery list, but it was exciting and fun. And we got to try something new that week and a different texture. It's very different yes. in your yes. mouth. Yes. So. Very true. We do that with our kids too. when they were little. I would always say, all right, you know, I would rotate who would get to pick the new food. And I feel like we did all the exotic fruits and, yeah. you know, it was, it was fun, but it also taught them to like, to be okay with trying new things and then yeah. exploring. So I really like that. Yeah. So the, fiber um, is a big one. Fiber is a big one. Add. Vitamin D. Um, So a good portion of folks are vitamin D deficient. Vitamin D does have a role in strengthening the gut barrier. And then, you know, for certain individuals, there probably is a component where gliadin or one of the proteins from gluten and wheat may, may play a role as well. But I always, always, always just tell people, if you are thinking about going gluten-free, especially strictly gluten-free, you need to talk to your healthcare professionals and get screened for celiac first um, because there, there is a difference between celiac, which is an autoimmune condition where you do strictly need to avoid gluten um, in kind of all of its forms versus someone who, who seems to have maybe more of a sensitivity or an intolerance to gluten. And we're still really exploring some of the science behind what exactly is going on in this non-celiac realm. Um, But there are some implications with having family members screened or screening for particular cancers down the road um, if you have celiac. So it's important to get that sorted out before you go gluten-free because the testing can be falsely negative if you're gluten-free. So can intolerances and sensitivities turn into allergies or it's a separate pathway? So um, yes and no. (laughs) Um, They are separate pathways. But what we realized, especially in kiddos, is um, there are a, a fair number of folks over the years who have ordered, for instance, food allergy panels. There may be blood work particularly blood work that people will get looking at protein levels called IgE antibodies. They're the food allergy antibodies. 
there are many folks that will have positive or, you know, numbers will show up on this blood work, but when they eat the food, they do fine. Um, and so there are a lot of false positive. So positive numbers, but they eat the food, they do fine. And in kiddos, the problem we were seeing is people would get these lists, especially kiddos with fat eczema. They'd have a ton of things positive. They would take those foods out of the diet and kiddos would then lose tolerance to those foods that they were tolerating. They would develop allergy to those things. So we we have the most data to, to kind of look and see what has happened in kiddos. We know kiddos have an immune system that is still very much, you know, learning and um, growing and adapting to the environment they're, they're exposed to. Um, it's a time where we see, you know, the ability for kids to outgrow allergies um, more easily. Um, we're not as certain of what all of those um, mechanisms are in adults. But my concern over time is if you're on a very restrictive diet, pulling out a lot of these foods um, for a long period of time, there could be potential for development of allergy. That being said, with some intolerances and sensitivities, you know, sometimes people will be able to reintroduce foods over time. Um, and so this is an area that, especially in adults, is still under a lot of, you know, research and we still have a lot to learn. And I think we're going to continue to learn a whole lot more as we're able to harness our understanding of the microbiome, which really we've only been able to rigorously study for like less than 10 years. The numbers mm -hmm. are so huge. There are more of our gut microbes than the rest of the cells in our body. And so the computer power that was needed to look at this data just wasn't available until recently, which is so, mind boggling. So I think that's like where even as a dietitian, you know, you have somebody come in, they know they don't feel well. There's bloating, there's gas, there's maybe diarrhea, there's maybe constipation. You know, I just, I don't feel good when I eat. And so part of the challenge is, you know, trying to find out, is it a food trigger? Is something causing it? Is there an underlying condition? Should we take a food out for a little bit, try to quote unquote, heal the gut and then reintroduce? Or do we recommend that they just take it away and and not bring it back. So it's always feels like, I don't want to say flip a coin because that does that sounds like we don't know what we're doing, but sometimes everything's so individual. Absolutely. Everybody has such a different response. I, I just, sometimes I really struggle to yeah. guess correctly the first time, which is what I want to do because I don't want them ah. to have to go through any discomfort longer than possible. But do you find that by taking foods out, like I said, quote unquote, heal the gut and then try to reintroduce, does that, is that your preferred method or? I, I agree. I think, you know, it's this, it's this big area of gray and I, I will, I look forward to the day when we have better diagnostics, when we have um, things to help guide our, our management more easily. I will say I have a personal story. So after my, after having my, my first child, Charlotte, I found, you know, kind of in those couple months after I had her, that when I ate eggs that were not 
fully cooked, like extensively cooked, like in a baked good, for instance, I had profound GI symptoms within like maybe 90 minutes of eating the food. So outside of the window that I would kind of know is like a true food allergy, I would have abdominal cramping and pain that had me literally in tears, doubled over, unable to function. I felt profound fatigue. I just felt like total garbage for probably four or five hours. I would be in the bathroom. Um, Sometimes I would throw up more often. It was just kind of the other end. And um, it took me several episodes before I put one and two together that it was egg um, kind of with, um, a couple of meals that we had eaten. And, um, I was an allergy fellow at the time. So I went to the office, I did the skin scratch to egg just to make sure it was negative. Um, you know, and I'm trying to think through and I was like, goodness, this sounds like a particular, a little bit like this condition we see more often in kids, something called F pies, food, protein, um, intolerance, enterocolitis syndrome long words, you can see why we call it F-Pies. It is an atypical food allergy type reaction um, that in little kids can end them, like land them in the hospital because they throw up so much that they essentially become like low on fluid, hypovolemic, like they can go into shock from this. Um, And, um, but in adults, we have a little more reserve. And so this was, you know, this, my daughter is now eight or will be eight. So this was, you know, seven-ish years ago. It's just been this last year that there was an article that like hit the allergy journals, really looking at the experience of this f in adults. And I'm reading through the article and I'm like, hot damn, this sounds exactly like what I dealt with with Charlotte, you know, several years ago. And I have several patients I followed over the years that have had very similar symptoms. Um, and they, in what we've done, you know, for me, interestingly, is I avoided egg. I continue to have egg like baked in stuff. I didn't avoid that. I did, you know, at the time, I think I took some probiotics. I think we did, we did try to go plant-based for a while. You know, we were trying all the things like I hadn't done my lifestyle medicine training, you know, I was kind of just flying by the seat of my pants. At some point, I got the courage to try like an over easy egg because I love over easy, like they're delicious. And I did fine with it. And so I do think there is something to be said for, you know, some of these reactions may get better over time. I think there is something to be said for healing the gut and that we may be able to reintroduce but we still have a lot to figure out, you know, and, and like can see the lag in, um, in the, in the science and and understanding. And we still don't fully understand what exactly is going on in this, in this FPIES condition. We know that it is like all the allergy tests for folks are negative. Um, they do have certain types of inflammation that get turned on, um, that are more in that auto inflammatory, um, category. Uh, but we don't have it all figured out yet. And I, and I guess that leads me to say, if someone does say that they have it all figured out and they know exactly what's going on, I call BS because <laughs> it might be more that they just don't understand what they don't know. Um, I think we really have to have a 
a lot of humility and saying, hey, this is what we know. We're going to do the best we can with what we know. But there's also a lot that we don't know. And we have to get uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. So, okay. So that leads me to a bunch more questions. So you mentioned scratch tests. You mentioned blood tests. You mentioned IgE testing. IgA testing. So what are the best ways to diagnose allergy sensitivity and tolerance? He said some of these give false positives. So what is the best way to determine if you have something going on? Yeah. So in a perfect world, the best, like the gold standard testing for food allergy is feed someone the food and see them anaphylax. Obviously, you can you can see some problems with that, some ethical issues, some safety issues. Um, but that that is the true gold standard testing. Um, we realize that that is not ideal. <laughs> and so in the right clinical context, if you have symptoms that are suggestive of that allergy flavor of inflammation, that is when IgE antibody testing is helpful. So we can do that in two different ways. IgE antibodies are specific Y-shaped proteins um, that uh, act like a lock and a key. The the body makes the protein, the protein is the lock, and the allergen or the food is the key. And so when we do those little scratch tests, we have a little bit of the allergen on the tip of a plastic little scratcher. We introduce that to just the very top surface of the skin. If you make those proteins, And then we'll see the development of a hive bump, like a little mosquito bite or a big mosquito bite on your, um, on your arm or on your back within about 15 minutes or so. And that then will give us an idea of, okay, yes, you do make that protein. It's that protein plus the clinical, you know, the history of having the symptoms that equal allergy. As I mentioned though, a lot of us make those proteins and we still eat the foods and we do fine. So that's considered sensitization. So you have the protein, you eat the food and you tolerate it. Um, there also are other testing, and that can be done by blood work as well. So say someone is on a medication that would blunt that skin response um, or prevent us from doing skin testing. Maybe they have really bad um, skin rashes or tattoos head to toe, we don't want to do the skin scratches, we can do blood work. And that looks for the level of that protein in the bloodstream. So those are helpful as well. Um, So that is food allergy testing. Food intolerance testing, there are a few types of like breath tests that are available, where maybe the and those are typically performed by gastroenterologists or GI doctors, um, most often. Um, They're not done super often though. And typically that will require you to ingest the food that you are intolerant to and then blow into a particular device or tube um, to measure the the gases that you're producing from your gastrointestinal tract. Um, Also not super pleasant, right? If you kind of suspect. So a lot of times intolerances are made through the history. So talking, you know, talking with the patient, um, with either allergist, GI doc, a dietitian who, you know, is well-versed in, um, understanding which particular foods may have, um, an excess or a lot of a particular type of, um, 
compound, like a carbohydrate or sugar um, that um, may be kind of the culprit itself. Um, intolerances tend to be more dose dependent. So the more you eat, the more problem you have. Allergy, even just a little bit is enough to trigger the response, like uh, a trace amount or like, you know, using a knife to cut um, up cheese pizza, someone has a milk allergy, and then you use that knife to cut, you know, something that didn't have milk protein on it. The kiddo who ate whatever was cut with that knife again, or using that same cutting board could have a reaction. So um, sensitivities. This is an area that we still are trying to understand the exact mechanisms that are driving it. So the exact reason why we're having these symptoms related to particular foods. And not specifically knowing the exact mechanism means that the testing we have available is kind of grasping at straws. Um, so I do not recommend food sensitivity testing on the whole. They're the main testing modality that you will see advertised all over, especially probably after listening to this because everyone's listening all the time. It's called <laughs> IgG testing. So IgG is a protein our bodies make similar to the IgE, but it is our body's main memory protein. It's how our body remembers that we fought off uh, COVID. It's how our body remembers that we got a tetanus shot. It's how our body actually remembers that we have tolerance to certain foods. So and to make things a little more complicated, IgG is just not one entity. There's actually four subtypes. So when you get these food sensitivity panels of, you know, 100, 200, 300, whatever foods for several hundred dollars, it doesn't, it tells you you have memory to a food. It doesn't tell you if it's a good memory or a bad memory. It just is a memory. And if you read the fine print, little asterisk, it will say not FDA approved. It also will say, and not that that is necessarily always a problem, but it's a little bit of a red flag. And the other thing it will say is you need to follow up with an elimination challenge or diet to find out if this truly is a problem or not. So what I, I typically will see is, you know, folks who maybe their gut health's not ideal, they're having lots of symptoms, they probably have increased communication between the food and their immune system. These panels light up like a Christmas tree. And then they're they're like, these are all the foods I'm eating. So then they have nothing to eat. They're losing weight. They're confused. They're stressed out, which is not helping the system either. Um, and they also just spent like several hundred dollars on something that increased their stress. Mm -hmm. So we can tell how I feel about that. Um, wow. there's no, there's no like validated science with like the hair, the hair analysis or those sorts of things. There are some small studies looking at the role possibly of patch testing. So patch testing is a way that we're able to test for delayed allergy to helpful in certain skin rashes. So like nickel allergy, folks who have, you know, wear earrings and have trouble with, with that triggering their eczema or preservatives like in our skincare. We've used patch testing for that for a long time to determine what those allergies are. And so there are some folks who are experimenting with using patch testing to look for sensitivities or delayed allergies to some of the emulsifiers and certain foods as well. It's not available widely. It's very, you know, very um, 
small numbers so far, but it does look like it may be helpful in a certain subset of patients. Okay. Yeah. I, I feel... Um, I feel exactly like you do. I'm like, these people spend all this money. They bring me their tests. You know, I had this test done. I spent $500 on it. And it says I can't eat this long list of foods. And then so they come to me like, so what should I eat? And I'm like, well, first of all, we don't even know if that test is accurate. But I get it. It's easier to spend money on a test than to individually take things out and try them. That takes time. It takes effort. That takes planning. It's easier to just say, here, take my money and do the work for me. It's just, unfortunately, it's not an, it's not an accurate assessment and um, it is what it is. So um, I'm with you. Save your money. Let's do it the right way. Have the, have the answers, have the clarity so that you can move forward and make the best decision for you. So one of the things that you mentioned was we don't have a lot of great science. This is this is fairly new. We're learning so much. That's what makes things a little bit more challenging to um, help people and help treat them correctly, uh, you know, the right way the first time. Um, what is your experience with um, people who come to you or people that have come to their doctors? They're telling them, listen, I I don't feel well. And the doctor is saying to them, well, listen, all your numbers are fine. All your, your testing is coming back fine. I don't see anything wrong. Uh, you, you coined this term medical gaslighting. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, because I think so many people are frustrated. They know they don't feel well. They know something is off. Um, but yet nothing diagnostically is supporting their claims. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can't take credit for, for, you know, but for develop, like totally coining the word, but I think it, it is an accurate description that many, you know, of the experiences that so many have where they go in, it took them a lot of, you know, it, it generally takes like a lot of time, energy, and effort, right, to make that appointment, to get yourself to the doctor, to feel vulnerable in sharing what you're experiencing. Many times, things that are not um, particularly um, easy to talk about, you know, we're talking about digestive issues or, like, issues of having to run to the bathroom. Like, those are kind of embarrassing things to talk about for some folks. And then you get there and, you know, they're like, oh, nope, you're fine. It's just your weight or it's just your, you know, your anxiety or your stress or it's just your hormones. They don't feel heard. They don't feel like their lived experience is validated. And they also aren't walking away with any necessarily helpful advice. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of where that idea and that term comes from. I think there are a lot of things that play into it. Our medical system is really good at fixing acute problems like a broken bone or, you know, like those, those quick and easy things like uh, for me, like fixing a runny nose, like super gratifying too, right? To like, here's a nail, we're going to hammer it. It's, you know, it's done. Um, it's not built for things that are chronic and it's definitely not built for things that are affecting our body in more than one place. You know, the system is very, has become very 
subspecialized, even within my own department. I I work under the department of ear, nose, and throat doctors or otolaryngology. And yes, we have some really great general ENT doctors, but we also have voice box specialists. We have ear specialists. We have head and neck cancer specialists. We have, um, you know, all of these little subspecialties within within that small field of its own. Um, and when you do that, there's this, you know, this tendency of like, oh, you have a problem with this area. Let's send you to the doctor for this area. But sometimes you need to zoom out and see things from that, you know, the whole, the whole human. When you have 15 minute appointments, it's hard to see the whole picture of what's going on. What's going on at home? Do you, are you able to afford groceries? Are you needing to go to the, um, the food pantry to get some of your food? Are you able, do you feel safe at home? Do you maybe have some, you know, some stressors with your partner or, um, do you have a home that has water leak issues with, you know, with mold going on, you know, all of these different aspects that you don't even get to scratch the surface necessarily in a 15 minute visit. You're just trying to, you know, get them in, solve a little problem, get them out next person. The other thing that plays in over 62% of physicians are clinically burnt out. And what happens, I will say, as someone who has been burned out a few years ago when I was sick, uh, you lean back. Every little task seems like it's climbing a mountain. And it's really hard to lean in and get curious about those situations that don't read the textbook or don't click the boxes. And, you know, that's not to, to necessarily make excuses. But, you know, the advice I give to folks is if you if you see someone like a, you know, a healthcare professional, you're just meeting them and they seem unhappy in their job, you might want to look for a second opinion because they probably are not going to have as much bandwidth to like lean forward, to listen, to critically think, um, and to, you know, get creative when it comes to figuring out what's going on and also partnering with you to come up with a game plan to, you know, to work on helping you feel better. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. Uh, I, that's why I'm so thankful for my job because we get to sit for an hour with people. And I notice when I spend that first 10, 15 minutes just catching up, getting to know the person, so many little things that they will say in that first 10 minutes about their week or what was going on will actually play a role into their you know, their treatment plan, their goal setting, because it always comes around full circle, but you have to take the time to listen, to hear those things. Otherwise, you know, you're going to miss it. And um, so if you're not feeling like you're being heard, instead of getting really frustrated, seek out another opinion. Yeah, as best you can. I know, and I know that can be challenging depending on where you're located. Um, and what special, you know, if, for instance, rheumatologists, there is, they're not enough. And, and, and especially in particular areas, rural areas. Um, but um, just, you know, don't give up. Done. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to end this um, session. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do your recipe at the end because we always end with the recipe, but 
Um, like I said in the beginning, I asked a couple of our uh, community, what are some of the questions you would ask um, if you could? And so I'm kind of just going to we'll kind of go through them fairly quickly. We won't spend too much time on them. Uh, some of them we've kind of already talked a little bit about, but I want to phrase it in their words so that way um, they get the information that they were hoping for. Um, okay, so question number one, can allergies be developed anytime or just as kids? They can more often as kids, but absolutely. I have new diagnoses more often with food allergy in adults. Shellfish and peanut are the ones that will come up a little more often. The other little condition I'll just make note of because we're coming into main pollen season here in, in the Midwest and East Coast with ragweed. Some folks will develop something called oral allergy syndrome. So eating certain foods will cause them their mouths to itch. Um, and it's actually related to the pollens that look similar to the foods. So if you are experiencing these symptoms, seeing an allergist can be really helpful. Um, and thinking about allergy shots or something along those lines can help with that and may improve your symptoms as well. Awesome. All right. What is the best way to avoid getting allergies? Ooh, uh, well, um, we're still learning, but, you know, in a perfect world, if we can let our kids play in the dirt a little bit, that's great. Eating a diet that is um, varied and, you know, diverse and primarily based in, you know, whole, you know, kind of whole food type things, um, less of the super processed stuff, it's going to be helpful. Uh, making sure our vitamin D levels are okay or taking a little bit of a supplement. Um, there's, you know, it goes back and forth whether having pets is helpful or not. I can't remember what the latest study, you know, it goes, it depends. Um, and those are the big ones. Yeah. Do you think it's the same for adults? They should be getting their hands in dirt as well? Yes. Yeah, there's good data to say spending time outdoors in nature is is helpful and beneficial. Start a little garden, right? There you oh get the benefit God, yeah. of the food and you get your hands yeah. in dirt. Yeah. Yeah. We love, 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 love our little garden. Yep. All right. Do allergies really get worse with exposure or will eating little bits build a tolerance? If you have a true food allergy and you are thinking about trying to eat the food, talk with your allergist. So there are some techniques, something called oral immunotherapy, um, which essentially do introduce foods in these really minute, like milligrams, not even microgram like levels and gradually build up. Um, but you need to do that under the guidance of, uh, you know, an allergy professional. Um, the reactions that you have to a particular um, food allergen don't necessarily worsen um, upon repeat exposure, but prior reactions don't predict the severity of the next reaction. So um, you could have one reaction that maybe is, you know, throwing up in hives, another that triggers like breathing symptoms too, or lands you in the intensive care unit. Um, and then the next one could be kind of hives and throwing up again. So you, you need to be vigilant, um, but also live your life. And I think that's where, you know, um, it, it's not easy, but, <laughs> um, but working with your, with your team can be helpful. 
Okay. Um, what foods can you eat to naturally help with allergies? So I, I, in my head, I was thinking, oh, like honey for seasonal allergies. We talk mm -hmm. about that sometimes. Is there any foods that we can... So Honey probably has some anti-inflammatory effects that are great. It's delicious. The amount of pollen in honey is not enough to change your pollen allergies. So kind of that's um, unfortunately a, a myth. Um, despite my love of bees, I have my little bee necklace on. Despite my love of, you know, our, our local honey pur purveyors, I think they're delicious and I love supporting our, uh, local businesses. Um other foods that can be helpful. So um, focusing on increasing the amount of omega-3s in your diet. So the omega-3 fatty acids, kind of putting an emphasis on those can be helpful. Again, kind of the vitamin D, fiber. Um, some folks, so the science is, uh, is not necessarily supportive of having to take dairy out of the diet, but I take care of a fair number of singers who are pretty... Um, pretty solid in their avoidance of dairy, especially before a concert, um, because they do seem to feel like that um, increases the the thickness of their mucus, kind of um, affects their vocal quality. So that might be something to experiment with as long as you're, you have adequate calcium in other, you know, areas of your diet. Um, yeah, those are the big thing. Oh, and then um, I do have some folks who We'll say, you know, decreasing the the white the white flour, the white sugar seems to help kind of decrease their symptoms too. Ah, oh, this has been tremendous. Like I have enjoyed this conversation so much. I feel like I've learned a lot. I know I'm going to be able to better serve my clients, and I know anybody that uh, listens to this has absolutely gotten a ton of information, and hopefully will help them, you know, in their in their journey, whatever that may look like, whether they're personally struggling with um, with an allergy or intolerance or, or living with somebody, um, this has been fantastic. So thank you so much for, for agreeing to have this conversation today. It was my pleasure. This is super fun. Um, and, you know, that's really my mission. I feel like, you know, got to make lemonade out of the, you know, the lemons with the health stuff and and I didn't even mention this. So within two weeks of being diagnosed with the with Sjogren's, my daughter, Josie, who was nine months at the time, was diagnosed with an anaphylactic egg allergy. And we've been fortunate enough that she's outgrown it. Um, but I, I feel for, you know, the 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 mamas and families um, who are, are are dealing with with all of this because it's it's a lot. It's overwhelming. I mean, you have to literally become an expert in reading labels because Absolutely. words, ingredients aren't just ingredients anymore. They are derivatives of, yeah. of chemicals sometimes. And like you were mentioning, like the polysorbates and the gums is like, now you have to understand what all of those words mean and where they come from and how are they produced. Yeah. I know I had somebody who had, um, it was something that it was a long time ago, but something with vitamin E and like certain chemicals could be yeah. made with vitamin E. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that information. So, yeah. right. It is. Well, so a here's a quick thing. So for those who are milk allergic 
one of the key words you could maybe look for for a long time was vegan, right? Because vegan means no animal products. So theoretically, something that's vegan should not contain milk protein. But wait, now we have what's uh, still vegan, but milk protein can be created in bacteria. It's like a recombinant process. So there are particular products and particular ice creams that are available that are vegan, but they contain the milk protein. It's just not made from a cow. It's made from a bacteria. And so, you know, it kind of goes to that, oh, shoot, like, you know, really shortcuts shortcuts. to watch out for. Um, or even like these Gatorade drinks that have protein and they have the whey protein in them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been another huge, um, stumbling block, I think for some families. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so helpful. So Kara, at the end of every episode, we share a recipe and, um, when we have a guest on, we ask that you get to share the recipe. So is there something that you, you know, something that's like a quick go-to recipe for you or a family favorite or allergy favorite? Yes. Um, so, so we're talking about anti-inflammatory living. We're talking about wanting to increase omega-3. My kids um, are typical, relatively typical kids. I think, you know, they're willing to try some things, but there is a salmon recipe that they repeatedly will gobble up. So we get uh, a couple of salmon fillets either, you know, from Costco, if we're going to buy in bulk or, um, you know, the, the grocer and, um, depending on the thickness, it usually takes 10 to 15 minutes to bake them at 400. We have like a little toaster oven we do it in, but I put a glaze on top. And so this glaze, um, is, uh, a couple of tablespoons of miso paste. So that is something you may not have in your fridge, but I would encourage you. That's a, a good fermented food for you to try. It is, um, Japanese, um, soybean paste. It's fermented. It has so much like delicious, like that umami flavor in it, it does have a, a fair bit of sodium. So just be conscientious. You do an equal amount of the miso paste with maple syrup, um, a little dash of soy sauce and a little dash of rice vinegar and mix it up and then spoon that over your the one side of your fillets and then bake them in the oven 400 until they're done, you know, depending on the thickness. And um, then we serve it with some steamed rice and some steamed broccoli and my kids are always happy campers when it's salmon, rice, and veggie night. And dinner is on the table in like 20 minutes or less, which is really key for our family so that we're not going through the drive-thru. Yeah. Oh, that sounds delicious. Um, I'm even thinking- a little sriracha in it too, if you like heat, um, but. Oh, I'm even thinking I might even add a little ginger to it as well. Just fantastic. to add a Ooh, little kick I love that. Yeah. Delicious and easy. That is the name of the game in my family as well. So quick. Yeah. And I'll make double the amount of glaze and I'll just keep it in a glass container. Just make sure not to like contaminate your spoon, you know, when you're spooning it on, but it will last in the fridge for a good week or so. So you could get, you know, mix it up once and then do it, you know, Wednesday one week and Wednesday the next week. And yeah, great idea. Cook once, eat twice. So yes, absolutely. Uh, Well, Kara, I can't thank you again for all of your your expertise and your help and your guidance. Um, This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast and um, I look forward to talking again soon. Excellent. All right, guys, that's what we have for you today. Thank you so much for being here and we'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Nourish Eat Repeat podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please rate, review, and share with others so we can reach and help more people. For more information about nutrition, how to work with a dietitian, or about any of our programs, visit our website at bodymetricshealth.com. You can also find us on socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook at bodymetricshealth. The book Nourish Eat Repeat is available on our website and Amazon in both paperback and ebook versions. Once again, I'm Adrienne Delgado, and I'll see you next week.